Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics. Um, I am your host, Ian Duncanson, and I apologize. This episode is one week late. I usually like to do them every other week, and I uh, was not able to get it done last week. So um, really great episode for you here today talking about uh, democratic socialism in America and some of the biggest challenges that we face uh, in our fights for equality and equity um, so I'm really excited to speak with Landis for this episode and be able to kind of dissect some of the uh, myths that people have when it comes to the idea of democratic socialism, um, but also to really focus on the issues that they're advocating for and why those issues are so important. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in. All right, I'm here today with Landis Spencer. Uh, I'm really glad to have you with me today. Uh, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, hi, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, my name is Landis Spencer. I'm the co-chair of the Black and Brown Alliance inside of DSA. Uh, the BBA is a BIPOC branch, uh, a part of the Metro Detroit DSA chapter. I'm also a candidate for uh, the Board of Police Commissioners uh, in Detroit. And the Board of Police Commissioners is a police civilian oversight body uh, that's tasked with um, basically police oversight. So police policy that manages their budgets. It's basically trying to make sure that, you know, police aren't out here wrongfully killing people and that the department is under control. Awesome. That's really exciting stuff. I'm glad to, to be able to talk to you about this and we'll definitely spend a little time uh, towards the end talking a little bit about your motivations for running for office because that obviously is a big step that takes uh, some, some forethought to, to jump in and do yes, that. <laughs> um, so I know, you know, being really involved with uh, DSA or Democratic Socialists of America, uh, could you tell us a little bit about who the DSA are? Yeah, so the DSA is America's largest socialist organization right now. Um, the, the org has about a, almost 100,000 members um, and is gearing up pretty close to the Communist Party size, which I think at its height was around um, 110,000 10, members or so. Um, and so we're really gearing up to be one of the largest socialist orgs in American history, which is pretty exciting. Um, and yeah. so the DSA is a grassroots org. It's member driven, um, members pay dues. And the org is democratic, so members have votes. It's it's really decentralized uh, as of as of late, and so basically there's chapters across the entire country, um, and each of these chapters kind of do their own thing. You might have some chapters that have a very robust electoral program. So uh, New York City is one of those chapters. They uh, they have like an insane apparatus of like field and comms and everything and they run slates of like five or six candidates and they have a very good organization or you'll have uh, chapters more focused on defunding the police and those types of issues and that's where Austin is very good at. Austin uh, actually won a hundred million dollar um, reduction in the police budget uh, and so that, that that was really exciting. Um, wow, yeah. And so yeah the org is an umbrella org. There's many left tendencies under it um, and depending on which chapter you're looking at, chapters are doing different kinds of work, but it's all based on, um, it's all based on instilling socialism and socialist principles in the United States. Um, and right now that means fighting for things like Medicare for all, Green New Deal, uh, ending the wars. Um, it's the kind of society that DSA is seeking to, to create. 
Sure. And importantly, it's democratic socialists. So yes. it's, you know, we, like you said, things are run democratically. So de or democracy and socialism don't run counter to each other. They can be integrated and actually come out better when integrated together versus um, a lot of times I think people think of socialism and think of more of the um, kind of like a fascist power structure or authoritarian power structure, which is different from democracy and also really different from socialism. So, um, you know, recognizing that it's that democratic socialism, I think is where a lot of people can get buy-in and recognizing that, that de strong democratic nature of it. Yeah, so we, we are <laughs> obsessed with democracy. I mean, that, that's, that, that's what democratic socialism is all about. And we believe in it so much that we want to expand it in the US. Uh, democratic socialists usually advocate for things like ranked choice voting and more proportional representation systems, like kind of like what you see in Europe. Um, it's all about expanding ballot access to more people. Um, and even like, you know, to more making ballot access easier for different kinds of parties. And we believe in democracy so much so that we want it to be included in the workplace, which is a key component of democratic socialism. Yeah. Um, and so in a democratic socialist model, you would have cooperative ownership. So how you see many cooperatives structured where workers get to like vote on, you know, what they want to produce when they want to produce it and how to produce it. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that um, democracy and socialism go very well together and i would say more so than democracy and capitalism because as we see with this current system um wealthy people can bypass our democratic norms and really control our laws um and what what society does um and so we would even say that socialism is more aligned with democracy than capitalism itself yeah i'm right there with you i watch uh capitalism and and the lies that we many of us were taught about how wonderful capitalism is um I, I i see that system running antithetical in many ways to democracy because it supersedes it it basically gives the market control of everything and unregulated capitalism the market that's controlling everything is really those who are wealthy those who have the wealth, those who most successfully exploit others for that wealth, they are the market that's really driving things and the rest of us are kind of beholden to them. But we'll talk more about that as we go through here. Um, how did you get involved with, I, I assume you're part of the Metro Detroit chapter. Um, how did you get involved and how did you end up kind of in your role that you're in now? Yeah, so I initially, so I had past dealings with DSA. Uh, I was a uh, I went to Michigan State University, and so I joined a few things for the YDSA. Go green. <laughs> yeah, go white. <laughs> but for any good, um, for any college student doing anything outside, for, for me anyways, because I had to work. I didn't have rich parents. So like me doing anything outside of working and classes was like a no-go. But once I finally graduated, uh, I started coming around the chapter. The first thing was DSA was doing this race in Ferndale where they were running a mayor and they were running a city council person. And so I started to go to like kind of like socials with them. And that's really tangentially when I started like looking at the chapter and getting familiar with the people. And then there was a, um, there was a strike uh, that happened with, with GM. And so uh, I thought that was awesome. Like how DSA was on there with a lot, with the workers on the line, everything like that. And so I went to a few of those, but my real involvement came in with the Bernie campaign this time around. DSA was, earlier than the Bernie campaign was in, in organizing in Michigan. They started about February, the Bernie campaign came here around March. And so I got in that way 
And that's where I really got my first taste of organizing. It was knocking doors for Bernie. And I loved it so much that uh, I went to a general body meeting and I joined and um, I kind of got wrapped up in BBA, the, the Black and Brown Alliance, because it was it was a nice home for me um, and ended up becoming co-chair there. And the rest is history. M most of my teeth cutting, though, was uh, was last year during the George Floyd protest. Um, I ended up heading up the defund committee inside the DSA. And that's where I learned a lot of, you know, I don't want to say like leadership skills, but like how to, you know, like chair a meeting, how to chair a body, like all that other st fun stuff that, you know, it's kind of like comes relevant. with running an organization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is helpful for running a campaign. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so with the DSA, you mentioned a couple of the uh, the things that the DSA is advocating for. It sounds like some chapters are a little bit more candidate focused, perhaps, and some are maybe more policy focused. Um, though, of course, running candidates or fielding candidates has policy elements to it as, as well, of course. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, some of the initiatives I know I've seen um, advocated for are like a minimum wage, ra raising the minimum wage and having a living wage rather, uh, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, uh, police reform and really police reorganization. So people talk about, you know, defunding, not necessarily, at least from my understanding, it's not like cutting everything to zero and just existing with nothing, but it's about like having a hard restructuring of the the what we consider to be police so that we're, we don't have people with guns on call for all cases of any type of possible emergency, but rather, you know, you have, uh, you know, other things like people who are social workers and people who are, uh, you know, psychologically trained to deal with mental health issues and um, all, all sorts of other things aside from just a man with a gun that's showing up all the time. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So DSA's position is, um, it's actually, so DSA has signed on to, it's, I think it's like this aid for abolition pledge, but the org is basically working towards essentially reimagining public safety, like what you just said. So reducing the role of policing uh, in our societies, like why does a person with a gun come up to someone who's having a mental breakdown, right? Um, or why does police need to stop you at traffic traffic lights? And so basically that's what DSA is committed to is just constantly reducing that role of, of, of police because frankly, other functions can do it better. And also rerouting those resources to places of public interest that can you know help to solve crime, right? Like um, the org definitely believes that the more resource the community is, the more safe it will be. So like, instead of giving police budgets more money, which we've seen constantly go up year over year over year, um, giving it to rec centers or giving it to schools or giving it to, um, uh, giving it to parks uh, is a better return on investment for public safety than giving it to the police department. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, we've created this, this militaristic, all powerful above the law force, essentially, that, that we should all just be afraid of and, and respect unconditionally. And I just, I don't think that that's, um, that's not necessarily what people default think of. They often think of, you know, the old cop who's been doing it for 40 years that they saw, you know, interacted with their kids on the playground. Yeah, that's At what least we've grown that's, up with. Yeah, that's what right. we're um, but yeah, I, there, there needs to be some reining in of that. Absolutely. So what, I guess, other initiatives or what is, cause there's, these are all really huge issues and, and mm -hmm. kind of, how do you, 
how do you do you throw everything at the wall to try and get something to stick are there is it prioritizing certain ones depending on where we're at at certain times are there some that are are like kind of like the pillars of we're advocating for this and then this and then this how does that work in terms of advocacy and and uh, lobbying yeah that's a very good question because um as you know, like being being on the left in this country in general, um, there's a billion different problems <laughs> right now with like you know, how how society is structured in America, like income inequality. There's a thousand different issues and a thousand different areas of focus that you can go into. And so quite frankly, it's a topic in the org of what do we prioritize? Um, but many different chapters will, will prioritize an area they think that they can push. So, it might be different for everyone. Um, so like for, for Detroit DSA, like labor might be stronger. This is just as an example. There's a lot of unions sure. or like in New York, like again, like their electoral program is really strong because maybe their laws allow it and they have a lot of people that are interested in that work. Um, but broadly, uh, I would say DSA in general, one of our main pushes right now is to rebuild the labor movement. And our national priority has been something like the PRO Act. Um, the PRO Act would end right to work laws and across all the states, uh, it would make unionization easier and it would increase our unionization rates. And so that has taken national precedent um, because without a strong labor movement, it's really hard to win demand such as a $15 an hour minimum wage or Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. All these become very hard without collected, collective bargaining of workers. Um, and we've seen this throughout history and across Europe and everywhere else. It's none of these demands have happened without strong unions and strong and a strong labor movement. And so DSA's priority right now is really the PRO Act. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I, I hope to see the PRO Act move. Uh, we'll see what uh, the, you know, the Democrats in name in the Senate have to say about where we, whether or not we get to make progress in the next, uh, you know, year and a half until the 2022 elections. Um, I think importantly, when I look at all these different issues, it's it's almost frustrating because like they're not they're not exclusive or discrete items in reality. I mean, when you think about just providing the basic needs for for any individual in the U.S., having a job that pays a living wage, having access to health care and having an environment that's not collapsing around them are all part of the same concept. Um, I think though they fit together and they make sense together because we should have all of these things for everyone if we want to consider ourselves or pretend to be the best country in the world or the greatest country in the world, we have to actually provide for everyone that's in our country. Um, you know, and I, I that's just that's kind of how I feel about it. I think when you mentioned like the right to work laws, I hate that it was even ever given that name because it's <laughs> yeah, so farce. It's, it's, so, exactly. it's such a falsehood for what it actually is. Really what it means is you have the right to get union benefits if your employer has it without paying union dues. So exactly. basically you have the right to steal from your coworkers um, mm -hmm. by, by benefiting off of what they're paying into. Yeah. Really a policy that is a right to work policy would in name be something that might fit more along what the DSA is advocating for is that everyone has a right to a decent paying job. Exactly. You know, like you have the right to a job that pays well, that supports society, et cetera. Yeah. 
that's what's so that's what's fresh that's that's what can be frustrating about being an organizer it's because what we're advocating for now it's like you look at every other industrialized nation and they have this like their society is determined like no duh no duh should like if you break your leg you shouldn't go bankrupt right like no duh if you're giving birth you shouldn't have to pay 5k for the ambulance ride like these are all things that other developed nations that are that have less wealth than this country does have all decided and have you know insured for their citizens and so that's the frustrating part it's like okay well we're still we're still debating over whether or not Susie should go bankrupt because she had cancer or like whether or not you know Jim has to work two jobs to barely be able to survive um these are the questions that we're we're, we're dealing with and so where we see ourselves is not is not being that radical right because it's like if you work full time, you should be able to afford food in a one bedroom apartment, right? Or like, again, yeah. like if you have some kind of medical emergency, you shouldn't go bankrupt. Um, but yet the opposition fights us so hard on even these crumbs that we're trying to give people to get a basic standard of life. And that's really all we're trying to do. We're trying to give yeah. people a life of dig a base life of dignity. Yeah. And that's, a, that is, you're, you're right. It is frustrating in the sense that I feel like sometimes the arguments are talking about two completely different things. And really, they are. Because, I mean, you can even see the difference if you turn on like CNN or MSNBC or, or any mainstream media show. And then if you turn on Fox News, it's like two completely, you're not even, you're talking about the same like topic, but you're not talking about the same issue. And mm -hmm. so like, very few people I know, if you said, if somebody breaks their leg, do they, it, is it okay for them to go bankrupt because they broke their leg? Most people would say, well, no. However, when you talk about something like Medicare for all that would provide that healthcare to everyone, we all chip in, we all have a good healthcare system, et cetera. It then changes into, well, I don't wanna have to pay more taxes and government's not gonna do as good of a job as the private industry. And I don't want you to take away my health coverage as though they somehow, like, I, I guarantee none of these people are climbing into bed at night with Blue Cross Blue, Cross, Blue Shield. No, or everyone wants their health insurance. And the crazy part is, is that Medicare for all would give you more choices. Like right now you have Blue Cross Blue, or not Blue Cross Blue Shield, but right now, like if you have the wrong healthcare, you can't go to certain hospitals, you can't see certain doctors, they may not cover anything. I mean, talk about like, when Obamacare first came out, there there were a lot of memes about death panels. But talk about a death panel. They like actively determine what what and what what you can't get. So if this surgery is super niche and super special, they're not going to cover it. And then you're high and dry. So Medicare for all would actually give you more choices because then you could see whatever doctor you want. You know, you would have all your base procedures covered and those would be guaranteed. You wouldn't have to worry about the finances of anything. So that's also what's frustrating too, is that people are like, oh well, I want to have all my options, but the current system doesn't give you any options. Right. Really and I, I've heard ho those horror stories of people who go to a doctor that is approved and their procedure ends up being performed by another doctor at that institution who is not one of the in-network doctors and suddenly yeah. it's not covered. <laughs> yeah. Or imagine you're like unconscious because of some medical like situation. You go to a hospital that's out of network. It's like, well, how was, how was I supposed to choose which hospital I right. wanted to go to? You know? it's, it's trash. It's just, it's a, it's a very messed up system that only benefits those who seek to profit. Yeah. Um, I think this kind of leads well into the conversation that's going on right now a lot about why don't people want to work? There's all these, you know, job openings and we can't get people to fill. The, of course, the only people I hear complaining about that are typically 
uh, service and retail industries that pay peanuts to their employees and have no benefits or job guarantees and don't back them up when customers treat them like crap. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the conversation needs to be had that this isn't a matter of um, people not just wanting to work or being lazy. It's that there's so many other things that are going on. Jen Psaki actually just answered a question in a press conference the other day about how, you know, people are having trouble getting childcare access. There's still a pandemic that's ravaging uh, our country and going into work. You don't know that most of the people that you're coming into contact with are protected or following guidelines. Um, and then you're working for poverty wages with limited job growth opportunity. There aren't, there aren't millions of jobs that are like salaried plus benefits, like high education jobs that are just sitting unfilled because people would rather get $300 a week in unemployment. It's just BS. Yeah, so there's so much a part of this conversation that's missing. So like you rightfully pointed out, there's a childcare element. There's the fact that a pandemic is still going on and still taking lives. Not everyone has had the vaccine. Um, th there's all these elements that's a part of that, but mainly, a couple of things are missing mainly. One is the reevaluation of you know, priorities with COVID because people realize that their jobs were so terrible, so awful, like to have no benefits, anything like that, right? And that in order to come back, in order for me to risk my life, to come back to work, to flip burgers for you, you're gonna have to compensate me well enough for me to eat those burgers and actually be able to afford yeah. an apartment. So that's one of it. But also what's missing from the conversation is that by us not having a robust social safety net system, these employers have been able to take advantage of these employees for years and they have a vested interest in making sure that we don't have a robust welfare state or social safety net system because of this exact thing, right? You have to go to McDonald's and flip burgers um, if you are to survive in this society or you have to work your terrible job because if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance, you don't eat. That's how cruel this system is. And so all these major employers have been, have been lobbying for this system not to be created and have been lobbying to make sure that if you're if you lose your job or if you're like kicked out to the curb, you're on your own. It's a they've they've ensured this doggy dog world winner take all system that we have because it it keeps them in power and it keeps them with the most leverage in the society. Yeah, well, and it, it makes it so that workers have no choice but to work for peanuts because there's mm -hmm. it's that or starve. There's nothing it's else, that or starve. and so it it backs them into a wall. And that's the funny thing is a lot of the people. Well, it's not really funny, but. Uh, you know, a lot of the the people that are so mad about we can't find any workers, et cetera, are the very same people who said, well, if you don't want to work a minimum wage job, go get a better job. Yeah, yeah. Or like the same people who said, like, I saw a really great post today. It was like it's the same people who are like, if you raise a minimum wage, you'll be replaced with like robots. It's like, well, where are all those rob robots right now? <laughs> right. They're nowhere to be found. Yeah. Right. Well, and when the corporation, you know, corporations like McDonald's and stuff are raking in billions of dollars of profit a year and they what they can't pay their employees a higher wage and keep prices the same. Yeah, that's why yeah, like I, you know, everyone says all oh, prices are going to go up. It's like, well, first of all, I would happily pay higher prices knowing that the people that are working at the places I'm going to are actually able to pay their rent like that'd be exactly. great. Not to mention we're subsidizing wages with social 
systems anyways that we yep. that we pay into that help cover costs for those who can't afford it because they're being paid poverty wages. Exactly. And I and for the people that say that small businesses they'll it'll hurt small businesses. I'm sorry if you if you can't afford to pay your workers a living wage, then you don't get to have a small business. You don't get to exploit workers because of you have a dream because you want to have a business that's profitable. It yeah. like anything and it, these are that's the thing about capitalism is like the the capitalist system would say like if you can't make it then you you close and something else opens up yeah, in its no. place. Exactly. And like even explaining it in capitalist terms, right? Like there's a labor market and in markets you have prices. If the price for doing business, the price of your goods are going up, you have to meet that demand or you go out of business. So if it's like it's not fair to ask your 10, 15, 20 employees to, to live in poverty, to like not be able to make ends meet, like have to struggle to pay rent, to, to, to bankroll your lifestyle. <laughs> like that's not, that's not how this should go. But I mean, like even, so small businesses are obviously important, right? And they have been hit by COVID. And so another thing that's missing from this conversation is that this isn't an either or. There have been great proposals that have that have offered or you know thought to offer small businesses money for them to pay their employees a, a living wage, right? So like the idea is if you play if you're a small business, you like have like 10 or 15 employees, if you pay your workers $15 an hour, we'll give you a tax break based on that like surplus labor cost. And so that's like an easy way to do that. Like this isn't we, we have enough wealth. We don't have to choose between <laughs> giving our employees a living wage and businesses, small businesses going out. Like we don't have to choose. We don't have to make that calculation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that large corporations try and do is undercut small businesses in price to put them out of business mm -hmm. anyway. But if they're held to standard, higher standards of paying their employees as well, it also makes it more competitive for small businesses if they have to adjust as well. So exactly. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, briefly, does the DSI or DSA align themselves generally with the Democratic Party and coordinate? Is it just kind of like a tendency to overlap on some issues? Um, is the Democratic Party kind of viewed as a vehicle in which DSA candidates would be able to get elected? Um, how kind of how does that how do you see that interfacing in your experience? Yeah, so this question is very it's a very controversial one and a very talked about one and a very debated one. I'll have this disclaimer that DSA is a very big tent organization. And so my thoughts do not capture the breadth um, of opinions and diversity inside of the organization. Um, Absolutely. But now analyzing it, I would say DSA's orientation towards the Democratic Party moving forward is that because our ballot access laws are so crazy and so limiting and so repressive for a developed nation, we can't start a third party, right? So like third, third right. parties haven't done well. If you look at the Green Party, they have historically not done well. You spend so much time fighting these like ballot access issues and then you run the risk of spoiling and which has real material consequences for many people. Um, and so the DSA's orientation is currently maybe we can borrow that ballot line and build up a structure of ourselves to have like our own, you know, like say like data firms, you know, ways of funding our candidates, ways of really building our own apparatus 
but will strategically use the Democratic Party ballot line. And so in layman's terms, it's basically like, yeah, we'll run as a Democrat, we'll use because of all these crazy ballot access laws, but we really have our own structure that makes us accountable to the people. Um, we're not taking, you know, or ideally, I don't think there's anyone taking like corporate PAC money. We're not taking like DCC money. Um, ideally, you wouldn't be sharing like, da like data with the party or anything like that. We're really trying to sure. build up our own structure um, and our own party-like structure that's inside of the Democratic Party. So in terms of relationship, it's, I would say it's complicated. It's a complicated yeah. relationship. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's, it's alignment is like inside the party. Like we're not trying to become um, like the chair of the Democratic Party. We're not trying to become Democratic Party consultants. N none of that. Sure, that makes sense. And I think um, when I think look at the the political landscape, I think the DSA most close more closely aligns with Democratic principles and priorities than the Republican Party, which is just off the deep end at this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so that makes sense. But I, I wanted to just touch on that. Just I think you explained that very well, because uh, I know that's something that people wonder and, and think about. Speaking of the American left, um, people often talk about liberal as being like the worst thing that you could possibly be uh, when they're talking about, you know, Democrats and those liberals and yada, yada. But I think beyond liberal uh, is, is the term progressive. I don't identify personally as liberal. I identify more as progressive because liberal is kind of let things be like we have some things like let people do what they want to do. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more government intervention than the conservatives would like, but it's it tends to be a little bit more hands off, whereas progressive is like, no, we have things that we need to change. We need to make this better. Um, we need to be looking forward and how we can improve, et cetera, literally making progress. What is your kind of take on the American left and, and those two terms in, in their context of how they would describe the American left? Yeah, so terms and definitions get very murky, as, as you know, because um, people use them in weird ways. Some political actors use them to like make you think that they're a certain way so like nancy pelosi would probably call herself progressive most people on the left probably would not <laughs> right so these terms get very muddled uh, bernie sanders called himself a democratic socialist um but we if if you or and so does aoc but i don't know they're not advocating for anything that would like make workers be you know own the means of production in the united states of america right and so like a lot of these definitions get kind of murky but i can tell you like in the eyes of a dsa person or someone you know who's a socialist how we see these and so to us liberals or like neoliberals are more are are basically they want to keep capitalism going right and so mm -hmm. they know that there needs to be some kind of government intervention to make that happen and kind of if you're a democrat kind of ease the edge of capitalism a little bit um but they even use government levers to shore up capitalism, right? So we had the Fed shore up the stock market when the crash first happened, the Fed pumped in nearly a trillion dollars to make sure that stocks were good. The Fed's also bankrolling a lot of corporate debt right now. And these are all very normal things under, under capitalism and a, a neoliberal government. It's what we've seen under Obama as well. And to be fair, conservatives do this as well, give out corporate, corporate welfare as well. Um, and so in a classical sense, both, both the Democrats and the Republicans are liberal parties of what we would understand as like neoliberalism, which is like a party that that believes in capitalism. Um, it's just that conservatives have a more 
you know, traditional like racist <laughs> value of it and a less like sure. let's round off the edges of capitalism and uh, Democrats are more incrementalist, more, okay, we'll give you, we're not going to build a welfare state, but we're just going to take the edge off just a little bit. And so progressives, they're basically social Democrats. So think FDR, think of what we see in Norway and what we see of Sweden. Um, we don't, progressives in essential, essentially don't want to abolish capitalism, but they think that capitalism can be reformed. Um, and they think that we can build a nice welfare state, we can have a Medicare for all, we can have a living wage, we can have enough government intervention to where we can really maximize outcomes and maximize happiness. And this is what you see in Norway and Sweden. This is what FDR was starting to do. And then sure. socialists take that a bit step farther. It's like, well, if you have capitalists still in the system, they're gonna defund all these social programs, which you are also seeing in Norway and Sweden. They're gonna do things to try to like, you know, take away the NHS because you're leaving that lever of power there and try to privatize all these situations, what we're seeing in the UK. And so we really want workers in control of their own destinies and we want worker democracy. And that's where you get to the socialist aspect. And so that's kind of how we would view what's going on, on the left. Um, if you ask a DSA member, or even if you ask progressives, I don't think that any of them would qualify mainstream democratic thought as being on the left, but in the American context, it is it is the left because our because our context is so shifted to the right. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and and that's the crazy thing is how many other countries. I mean, Canada, which is um, you know they have nationalized healthcare and that's just accepted. Even the conservative party it just accepts that that's their system. Like that's that they're not trying to fight against that because it's so popular. Um, but you know, they're like comparing that with where we're at here, they're generally, even though there are obviously some pretty conservative elements to their political system, they're still even like kind of shifted to the left of where our political system is in terms of the mainstream conversations that we're having. And I yeah, like that I you mean, distinguished even, um, how, how progressive and socialism kind of fit in, in that, that spectrum, if you will, of left to right. Yeah, I mean, so one of the most telling things is that Obama sent, I think it was like a couple of his staffers ended up going to work for David Cameron. Um, and they, they've been very good friends and very well aligned. David Cameron was the uh, conservative UK prime minister. And so that was not their left party, the left party is the Labour Party. And so that can kind of tell you just kind of how tilted we are is that like our left wing, um, or our Democratic Party, which is supposed to be our left wing party would actually be a more right wing, more center party in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing unfold right now is like the, the constant pushing of Biden to move further to the left because he is very much of neoliberal background. I think some of the things that, that are, are fitting through are closer to progressive than they are, you know, than we would have expected but there's still a long way to go, especially when we look at the, the barriers in terms of our elected officials and in, in how we make that work. But it, it's been really great to see some of the mainstream conversation shifting left and more people learning about and embracing, um, and, and even in polling, showing that they're in favor of more progressive policies. I think um, that's, that's a step in the right direction. Um, so a couple other last things I wanted to touch on. So what do you think are kind of some of the big, biggest obstacles right now? Like, what would you say is our top obstacle when we think about 
um, you know, lack of education about conservative and, or I'm sorry, progressive and socialist ideals. There's the gerrymandering and kind of anti-democratic structure that we have with the Senate and the Electoral College and gerrymandering and all of that. We've got the way that media likes to cover issues um, very much from the uh, neoliberal perspective in most cases. Um, and then of course we've got corporate America that's throwing as much money as they can against any type of socialist or progressive system. What do you kind of, when you think about this, I know it's kind of a loaded question, but what would you say is kind of like the first battle when we look at those different issues? Yeah, it's a lot. And I apologize for not being able to narrow it down to one. I can narrow it <laughs> down <laughs> That's to a couple fine. things though. Um, and so one, the most, the largest one really, and where we really start to see our social institutions dive, and we really start to see the wealth gap um, between CEOs and the average worker explode was all when the labor movement started to die. I um, mean, that wasn't an accident. It didn't just happen. <laughs> it was it was through legislation. It was through laws. It was, you know, these, you know, right to work or right to work for less laws. All of this stuff coincided with this explosion of income inequality. And we, we can't underestimate how important a strong labor movement in is and how unions are, right? So in a union, you know, you're you're with your fellow workers, uh, sometimes you'll strike together. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're black, if you're white, if you voted for Trump, if you voted for whoever, you guys are both on the line together and then sometimes striking together to, to get demands from the boss because they have like bad conditions, because they're, you know, not paying you a fair wage, all of this. And that really does condition you to have solidarity, which translates at the ballot box. It translates sure. to, you know, voting for candidates who will give you a living wage or changing the healthcare system to cover people who are, um, you know, who don't have healthcare. You end up seeing, you end up seeing your position in a broader light when you're engaged in these struggles in a union. And so rebuilding the labor movement is priority number one for progressives, for socialists, anyone who's on the left, quite frankly, because it just, it's really hard to win these insurmountable battles without that. Like it's hard to challenge the corporate power and the corporate monopoly that they have over the political system without that. Second is money and politics. And I, I think one may coincide the other, but money and politics is has been one of the largest corruptors. Um, and the Citizens United decision really also spelled what has been an American decline. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it means that like fossil fuel companies can, you know, form a pack and, you know, you'll have, you'll have incentive to, um, to take those positions because they'll help you get reelected. Or once you're out of office, funny enough, you end up on their board. <laughs> and so they can yeah. financially reward you in that way. Um, you look at a lot of the former Obama people, right? Like Eric Holder did a brief stint at Uber. Um, Jay Carney, the former press secretary, he's at Amazon. He was on Twitter fighting all the politicians about the unionization effort. And so you have this revolving door in Washington where you either will get a very lucrative job at one of these firms if you take the positions that they like, or they'll bankroll your next campaign. And that has been devastating to the American quality of life, to income inequality, um, to, to ensuring that there is a social safety net to all these issues that we care about. Absolutely. I, I think you're spot on. I appreciate you clarifying all those. It is hard to pick just one because there are a lot of issues we need to tackle. I picked two. I got close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the last thing I wanted to, because I know um, you've got you've got kind of a hard stop here is, uh, so you're running for office. 
Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, just what motivated you uh, to run for office, why you chose the office you're running for, and what you hope to, to do if elected in that position. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, I really got like my teeth cut hard on organizing with um, the, the George Floyd killings last year and the protests that resulted of that. And I was in charge of um, the Detroit DSA's chapters uh, defund committee. And so it was through going to like a lot of these police commission um, meetings and through protesting and really figuring out like what policing was like in Detroit, um, how Detroit has a prevalence of surveillance technology that's going on right now. We have like, we have systems that New York doesn't even have in terms of like technology. It's really crazy because our city is very poor. <laughs> and so it was like through learning about all these actions and just like how corrupt the department was. Um, it's, it's settled $19 million in the last five years in police brutality claims. The chief is constantly lying about what the department's doing. He's like saying like the department isn't evicting anyone or has a policy against evictions when they're evicting people every day. And it was so all these like frustrations that really motivated me to be like, okay, what can I do to affect change in this realm? And so you have the civilian oversight body, which according to the Detroit charter has a lot of power. Like they can help set policy um, for the department. They can, they're the final say on the department budget before it goes to the mayor. They handle disciplinary action. They can subpoena witnesses and like investigate these claims, all this like rich power. But the board today acts as an extension of the police department. There's a lot of former cops that are on the board. Um, sure. Even the ones that aren't former cops are like very pro police officer to the point where they look past anything that they do. There's a couple good voices, um, but it was really going to those meetings where I was like, okay, well I can do this. Like I can, I can run, I can win, and I can get on this board and use it as a voice for all these issues, such as like the prevalence of surveillance technology, um, the militarization of our police department, which is getting out of hand, um, the police getting too much funds. I could really use this as a bully pulpit. Um, to, to further to push on these issues. And at best, if I get other people to run with me, which it seems like there's some more progressive people running as well, well, we can form a majority and actually be able to affect change on these policy issues. That's awesome. Where can people find out more if they want to uh, learn more about your campaign? Yeah, so my website is landisforbopc.com, or you can follow the Metro Detroit DSA chapter. They're constantly blasting what I'm doing because we're, <laughs> we're very intertangled. Um, or on social media, the landisforbopc tag works for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Awesome. I'll make sure to include those uh, details also in the description for this episode when I post it. So thank you, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this has been really great talking to you. Um, and I, I hope to talk to you more. I've, I've been interested in getting more involved with DSA. Your meetings oftentimes just fall the same week as the, the weeks I have my Dem Club meetings locally. Um, but I, I look forward to seeing, seeing what DSA does next and uh, best of luck on your campaign. Awesome, thank you so much. Really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening today. Um, I hope this episode was as informative for you as it was for me in talking to Landis. I am including all of Landis's info as well as info for the Metro Detroit DSA and the National DSA organization in the description for this episode. So you can find links there to go find out more, learn more. Um, if you'd like to donate to Landis's campaign uh, for police commissioner, you can do that also through his, uh, his website. 
He is running for the police board of commissioners for the sixth district in Detroit. And so uh, I'm sure if anyone here is as passionate about these issues as I am, um, that Landis would greatly support uh, or appreciate your support through a donation to his campaign. Um, that being said, uh, if you have not yet done so, please go check out the Instagram for this podcast at mitten underscore politics. Uh, there's also a Facebook page at mitten politics. And you can email me any questions, concerns, or topics you'd like me to cover in the future at mittenpolitics at gmail.com. Um, I'm not sure when the next episode is going to post. I am working on a couple different potential topics for future episodes. Uh, so stay tuned, and I'll be sure to put out some more social media when I have episodes uh, that are getting posted. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope that you have a great week.